Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. It is, as of today, officially October. October 31st of this year is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the traditional beginning of the Protestant Reformation was Martin Luther nailing his thesis to the door at the church at Wittenberg. This song we're about to sing, the lyrics were written by Martin Luther. So it seems appropriate for our Reformation month. We may sing it every Sunday this month, just because I like the words so much.
good to be back. I appreciate Micah and Tom for standing here last Sunday and Wednesday. So open your Bibles to the book of James, and we are going to start in James 2. Throughout the Bible, as I've said repeatedly, there are certain thematic elements, ideas that come up repeatedly, Old and New Testament that you can pretty much assume are part of the character of God. For God to emphasize these things in the Old and New Testament, you can assume that they are important to him. The very first, of course, whether you look at the law or whether you look at Jesus' summation of the law or whether you look at Paul's emphasis, the first of them is God is first and foremost. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. God is very clear that he wants all the worship that is all about him. But right alongside the supremacy of that idea, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Right along with that, Jesus says, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And that is also a very, very important element of genuine God worship. It is very important that we not only love and worship and praise our God, but then because our participation in the love and worship of God doesn't improve God, it doesn't advance God in any way, he doesn't become better when we do those things, he expects us to show the same kind of grace, mercy, kindness, long-suffering toward each other, part of how we live out our Christianity, part of how we live out our worship to God, part of how we live out our praise to the Father who saved us is that we treat his people appropriately. And you find that repeatedly. I quoted a couple of the uh, Ten Commandments just a moment ago, the first two. The first four commandments, all the way down to uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, those have to do with your relationship with God. But starting at commandment five and all the way through ten, it's all about how you relate to other people. Whether it's honor your father and mother, or whether it's thou shall not kill, or whether it's don't commit adultery, or whether it's don't steal, or whether it's don't bear false witness against your neighbors, or whether it's don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. All of those commandments have to do with how you deal with each other. And so James is very influenced As we've seen time and time again, James is very influenced by Old Testament and wisdom concepts. He's very influenced by the same teaching that Jesus advances on the Sermon on the Mount. And so in that Jewish mindset, he recognizes that not only are we to worship and praise God, but that we are to treat other people well. And in that, he and Paul would very much agree 
don't have preference for one person over another. If you see a rich person, a well-to-do person, if you see a man with a a gold ring who looks like he's well-to-do, don't give him preferential treatment within the church over somebody who has nothing to give you, nothing to, to make you any better or help you. And that's a problem that I think is still to this very day kind of pervasive in the church world. If somebody walks into a church and they're clearly of celebrity status or they're clearly rich or well-to-do, the church does have a tendency, the church by and large, when I use the word church right here, I'm meaning the corporate church such as it is in the world right now, has a tendency to automatically kind of give that guy a front row seat, make a big to-do of we've got some sports stars with us today or You all know this actor or actress. Well, look, they find our ministry and our church really likable. There was an ad taken out a few years ago. I won't mention the the name of the church in Nashville, but they took out a big full-page ad about all the celebrities that go to their church. And they named celebrity singers and sports stars, and they advertised themselves and may still do it as the Church of the Tennessee Titans, you know, because they have so many members who go there which means every time they pass the plate, the Titans fumble it. And so, wow, that was cold, huh? Well, that's not supposed to be, is my point. It's not supposed to be that the rich, the well-to-do, the famous get any preferential treatment within the church over the everyday person or the poor person. There is an equality with God. There is an equality in God's economy because God is not a respecter of persons. Tom, do me a favor and look up Galatians 2.6 because it's going to say that God does not show partiality. Let's be honest for just a moment. When you die, you take with you nothing, absolutely nothing. You come into this world with nothing and you leave this world With nothing. So, whatever you acquire or don't acquire in this lifetime, God's not impressed. God doesn't care when you stand in front of Him and you have nothing. He's not impressed if once upon a time you had a whole lot or if you had a little, because at that moment you have nothing. All you have is faith in Christ and the justification that comes as a result of your faith in Christ. Other than that, you got nothing. You've got no gold. You've got no money. You've got nothing that you can pay God off with. You've got nothing that you can impress him with. He doesn't care how famous you were because he's more famous. He doesn't care how well-known or influential you were because you were well-known or influential for maybe 70 years. He's well-known and influential forever, always was, always will be. In other words, he's simply not impressed with anybody. And if it's true that he's not impressed with anybody, then why does the church that bears his name act like they're impressed with people? Read that for us, Tom. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So God shows no partiality. When God looks at the human race, he does not see the lesser people and the better people. 
He does not see the poorer people and the richer people. What he sees is a planet full of depraved, wretched sinners. That's what he sees. And then by his goodness and by his grace, he elects some people, chooses some people, draws some people to himself. Some of those people are rich, well-to-do people. Some of those people are poor people who have nothing. But God does not show partiality toward one group or the other. Therefore, James is going to conclude that within the church, it is improper for the church to show partiality because God does not show partiality. So if, in fact, the church is a reflection of the nature and character of God, then it should also not show partiality. Now, it is within that context of not showing partiality. It's in that context that we would agree with We would agree with everything James is going to say about treating people fairly within the church, but it's in that context that James is also going to say that along with your faith, you need to add works. And he's going to put works almost on par with faith and say that faith without works is dead. And that's the point where the conflict apparent conflict between Paul and James kicks in. It happens right here in the second chapter right away as James starts saying that you have to have faith, but you also have to add your works. And he seems to be saying that works are a vital part of your justification. That in order for you to be justified, in order for you to be actually genuinely counted as righteous in the court of heaven, you have to not only have faith in the finished work of Christ, but you have to have good works that accompany that faith. And he's going to get fairly argumentative about it and say, you'll say to me, show me your faith. Well, I'll show you my faith by my good works. And so he's really going to combine faith and works, faith and works which is in so many ways the antithesis of what Paul writing to Gentiles is going to argue. And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at that. We're going to see the argument. In fact, I have several bits and pieces of articles from big, well-known Christian organizations and ministries where they try very hard to reconcile the fact that James and Paul seem to be saying two different things. And they usually reconcile it in ways that make it worse. It's it's like pretzel logic with most of these folks. They end up saying, and in fact, I have one article that actually says, works are not necessary. It's just faith in Christ. That's all that's necessary. But you've got to have works because those are necessary. And I read that and kind of think, well, what is it? Is it yes? Is it no? They don't know what to do about it. And the solution, I think we all know, the solution is that they're writing to two different audiences that have two different backgrounds, that have two different traditions religiously. 
And if you don't see the difference and the history of Israel moving into Christianity versus Gentiles who have no background in the law or in Moses or any of the covenants or any of the prophets, you can't say to those Gentile people in the first century, you can't start quoting the Old Testament scripture and have them say, yes, we know that, we're familiar with that. Instead, there has to be this starting place of faith in Christ is what saves without the works of the law. Because any Gentile would naturally say, well, we don't have the law. We don't have the covenants. We don't have that background. So how can you require that of us, especially if James and Paul are right, and if you miss the law in any one piece, you're guilty of the whole law. The Gentiles have missed the whole law continually all their lives. If you introduce somebody to the law in their 40s, well, then they've had 40 years of missing the law. They are now guilty. And so the difference exists. And it's okay to say out loud that the difference exists. For some reason, commentators and preachers have a tendency to want to reconcile the two and say, no, no, there's no difference. No, no, James is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. One of the most popular ways that they'll say that is they'll say, well, Paul is talking about justification before God, but James is talking about justification before other men. But then you read James's examples. Abraham, Rahab, he's talking about being justified before God. So it's very clear that James and Paul are both talking about the forensic righteousness that comes about as a result of God justifying a person, and that justification is, in James' mind, a result of faith and good works, and in Paul's mind, faith alone. Do we understand the difference? And it's a vital, vital difference. This is one of the reasons that Martin Luther came to the conclusion that the Gospel of James was an epistle of straw. He said that there wasn't any gospel in the book of James. Now, I'll happily preach from James and find the gospel in James, but I also recognize James historically. James was not trying to counter another popular argument, is that James was trying to correct the misuse of Pauline doctrine, except that James wrote before Paul. And so you can read all of these articles online and you can come away more confused than when you went in because you'll end up saying, well, which is it? Is it, is it faith without works? Is it faith with works? Do we harmonize both of those by saying it is and isn't works? What, what else are you going to say? So we're going to take the next couple of weeks and really hash through it and see if we can understand the differences between what James is getting at and what Paul is getting at, and that it's okay historically to admit that the Bible contains both of those because it's to two different audiences. And as soon as you start, let me just throw this out too, as soon as you start with the idea that the church is Israel, then that distinction disappears, and you try to apply James to the church. And as soon as you try to apply James to the church and Paul to the church, now you have a conflict. But as long as you keep them to the audience they were writing to, then the fact that they take a different approach to justification by faith 
isn't a big problem for you. You can deal with it. Understand? Mm -hmm. Are we okay? Yes. Yes, sir. Can you remind us the audience they were writing to? Sure. Sure. James was writing to the diaspora, scattered Jews, Israelites. He says it at the very beginning. In fact, the first verse says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are the dispersed, the diaspora, who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Who are the 12 tribes? Jews. Jews, Israelites. That's who he's writing to. Those are people who have a background in the law. They have a background in the scripture. They are familiar with the covenants and the promises and the prophets. They know all that. They believe that they are descendants of Abraham and that therefore that Abrahamic promise and covenant is theirs for the taking. Gentiles don't believe any of that. Paul is writing to Gentile, uneducated audiences that are made up of the goyim, the, the folks who don't have that Jewish Israelite background. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Don had a question. Yes, Don. It's not exactly clear for me. Um, are you saying it's a different approach, but it's the same message, same um, belief, same practice, but a different approach? Or are you saying that it's No, you're going to see James agree that Abraham was justified because of his faith. So he's going to agree with Paul to that degree. But then he's going to give an example of Abraham where it was Abraham's works that were part of the justification process. So James and Paul both agree that justification is a result of faith. One of them, James, says, and with that faith, it's necessary to add works to be fully justified. Paul is going to say, you're justified by your faith, now do good works. So they both agree faith and works. They both agree that justification is by faith. The difference is going to be that just like the legalistic standard that James has, has grown up with, and that his audience has grown up with. Remember in the introduction to the book of James, we read from the book of Acts where James confronted Paul when Paul came to Jerusalem, and he said, what about all these people who are zealous for the law? They have faith in Jesus, and they're zealous for the law. Well, those are going to be the people that James is writing to. And James says to those people who have faith in Christ and are zealous for the law, he says to those kind of people, faith justifies and it's necessary to do good works. Paul says, faith without works justifies, but do good works. So it's just a difference, I think, in the emphasis they're placing to each individual audience. There, that was actually my conclusion for next week. But, but since you asked... There it is. I don't think the conflict is what some folks would call a contradiction in the Bible. I don't believe it's a contradiction. What I believe is it's two different audiences and two different emphases. Does that make sense? Very clear. I like it when I get a very clear. Yes, Alex. I haven't said anything yet, and there's already questions. Go ahead. All right. I know the 
you know, the Jews are very much about his legalistic background. But do you think he's partly addressing the notion of uh, salvation as a birthright? And therefore, you know, in a sense, you don't really have to do anything because you were born into it. And he's saying, no, 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 this is not like that. Is that part of it? It could be. Unfortunately, James doesn't tell us what the motivation was for saying it. He just says it. But the whole Jewish religion for 1,400 years is based in do stuff. Do stuff. And so James doesn't just rip the do stuff away from them. Instead, he makes it faith in Christ justifies and the do stuff is important. And so I wish that he had extrapolated on it more. I wish that he would have told us exactly what that relationship is. But it certainly sounds on the surface like he's equating faith and works. And so I think, to be honest with the Bible, we have to allow James to say what he's saying and allow him to say it to the audience he's saying it to, especially knowing that that audience does have 1,400 years of good works, the importance of works, the importance of do stuff. He doesn't just eliminate it from them because, because, by the way, don't forget that Christianity is a Jewish religion. Don't forget that Jesus was Jewish. Don't forget that he is the Jewish Messiah and that all the promises of the Jewish Messiah have been given to Israel. And so they are accepting Christ as Messiah, but it's not making a radical transition in their religion. They see it as the further continuation and completion of their religion. All too often we think, well, Christ came and then automatically everybody just stopped going to the temple and stopped sacrificing animals and stopped because Jesus is here and he's the Father. That's not the way it happened. There was a transition period in the first century of those Jews who were making the transition into Christianity and trying to figure out where their works and religion and worship and the temple and the animals and the, where does that all fit? That's why the book of Hebrews exists, is in order to argue that, okay, those things were types and shadows. Those things can no longer justify. It is now Christ that does it. But that was a period of time that it took for those transitions to happen as the Israelites and Jews saw Jesus the Messiah as the continuation and completion of their religion. Go back and read sometimes Stephen's argument before he was stoned, the sermon that he preached. He goes back and recites the history of Israel and then sees Jesus as the completion of the history of Israel. He's the culmination. He's the one that was promised. And then because he was here, we got the Holy Spirit. That's part of the promise. So they see automatically a continuity. And I think James sees that same continuity. Whereas when Paul is writing to Gentiles who don't have all that history and background, they don't see the continuity. They have a starting place at Christ. And so Paul's attitude is, because the Jews were not perfected by the law, there's no good reason to impose the law on Gentiles because it did nothing for them. 
So we're going to start at Christ and justification and righteousness comes through Christ. It's all about Christ. But he can't argue continuity to them the way that James and Hebrews and John can to historic Israelites. Does that make sense? Okay. Yes, sir. Couldn't they also be necessary but not necessarily put on us as our burden for our own salvation? I guess God working through us performs good works that are a result of and evidence of salvation. So to me, that's not too much of a... I would say you're arguing very Pauline. Yes. The question question is, when we read James for what James says, does he say that? Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, I know you're trying to... It's okay. Oh, I was sure when I walked in this morning. Because this is a huge controversy. 2,000 years people have been arguing about it. That's why, like I said, Martin Luther just dismissed this book because that was the easiest way to harmonize it with Paul. So, you know, what are you going to do with it? Okay, what? Um, I, I apologize for trying to see the situation as black and white. But does this case mean that James is, in a sense, wrong? No. So Paul can be right and James can be right, even though James is saying you have to work for faith. If, in fact, they're writing to two different audiences who have two different historic traditions, who have two different approaches to their religion, who both agree that Christ is the know-all and end-all, but they approach that reality from two different positions then I think they can both be right. Do the Israelites have to do works? Well, James is arguing they do. Because that's their religion. They have to. That's doing the law. You have to. That was Jesus talking to the Pharisees and saying, you know, you do part of it. You tithe your mint and your cumin and your spices. Well, that you should do. Because you have to. You should do that. But then he says, don't ignore the weightier matters, the weightier parts of the law. So... Yeah, the law wasn't optional. To every Jew, the law was absolutely imposed on them as a have to. And so James, who writes in imperatives, the same way the wisdom literature speaks, he goes after the imperatives and makes it sound like the works are a have to. But that's his history. That's his background. That's his lexical tradition. That's his scriptural approach. So from his standpoint, I would say he's right. And I would say Paul is right. And there's only conflict if you try to impose both of them on the same person. So the the Israelites never grew out from being under the law, but they never found salvation in the law, and Jesus was the salvation. Which is why the book of Hebrews exists, pointing people to Jesus and Jesus alone, so that they would free themselves eventually from the law. Paul was very clear that when some Judaizers came to Galatia and tried to impose the law on Gentiles, he said they're anathema. Burn them. Do not let people impose the law on Gentiles because his argument is you already have the spirit. You already have the gifts. You already have salvation. What more can the law give you? The law couldn't save anybody And we're going to look at it in a minute out of Romans, too. He argues the law doesn't save anybody. Therefore, why would you impose it on Gentiles? But when Paul in Acts goes to Jerusalem and he hears that there are people there who claim that Paul is telling Jews to abandon Moses, Paul gets very legal 
with them, takes a vow, shaves his head, goes into the temple, sacrifices an animal. All of those are things that he would say if they're imposed on a Gentile, they're anathema. But he's perfectly comfortable with it among the Jews. Titus, no, do not circumcise Titus. He's a Gentile. Timothy, mother is a Jewess. So Paul circumcises him. Why? Because Paul sees the distinction, the difference between the Gentiles on whom there is no law imposed and the Jews who still have those traditions. And he sees the difference and he's comfortable with the difference. I'm comfortable with the difference. Anybody who reads the Bible for what it says should be comfortable with the difference. But the church that doesn't see the distinction between Gentile and Israel and have wiped out the Israel distinction in favor of the whole Bible's about me now, those people aren't comfortable with the difference because they end up trying to say that the law and James and Paul all apply to me. That's where trouble starts. When you get people saying, look, you know, the law says, and then they impose it on you, what are they doing? They're taking the law that was the covenant insignia at Mount Sinai with Israel, and they're imposing it on a Gentile. That's how confusion starts. Same thing here. Does that make sense? Yes, and if all of this is not done in faith, it's not very... It's yeah, not very faith, faith still justifies. They're both going to agree with that. I still haven't said anything. Okay. Um. <laughs> Just a, a clarification question on the audience. Yeah. Is it, when we talk about it being Jewish believers, are we talking about... Well, are we saying Jewish believers, do they believe in Christ, yeah. or is it Jews in general, some of which may not, and some of, what's their understanding? Are he they, seems to be writing to Jewish believers because he's calling them brethren, yeah, of a like faith as his, but understand, and this is hard for us to wrap our heads around because we're 2,000 years separated from it, when we say Jewish believer, we're not talking about the same thing as a 20th century Gentile church-going believer. A Jewish believer is somebody who has the background, the history of the religion and the law and Moses and Abraham, and all of that is vitally connected to them. And then they have the promise of the Messiah to come, and they see the completion of that promise in Jesus of Nazareth. He's the Messiah to come. But there were lots of people who claimed to be the Messiah. They just didn't have the evidences, which is why the Bible is so chock full of the gospel writers giving evidence, evidence, evidence. He's actually the Messiah, regardless of how many people have claimed to be Messiah. And so the acceptance of Christ as Messiah is just a, I keep using the word continuation, but it's just a continuation of what you already believe. You already believe in Yahweh. You already believe that it is Yahweh who has sent the Messiah to a Gentile who has no background in any of that. When we say believer, we're talking about somebody who's, who's had this epiphany, who's had this moment of, oh, Christ as my Savior. Okay, that's a new starting point for me. For a Jew, it wasn't a, a new starting point. It was a continuation of what they were already in. And so James is writing with that sense of continuity uh, the writer of Hebrews is writing with that sense of continuity and saying okay those things 
don't accomplish anything anymore it's all Christ he's a better savior a better mediator a better high priest but why would you use the words high priest why would you use the words better mediator of a better covenant with better blood why would you use those words because those are the words that are the basis of the Jewish religion to begin with so you can say Christ is still that he's still a mediator he's still a high priest he's still the blood-bought mediation he's he's establishing a new covenant that's been promised all the way back in Jeremiah and Isaiah but that's continuity it's not brand new distinction so when you say Jewish believer a Jewish believer is a different animal than you or I because to us it was all brand new to them it was a continuation of what they already believed they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah. The same way that we anticipate the coming of Christ again, the same way that, that Todd said it would be wonderful if you came back today, that anticipation of coming was just part of the Jewish culture and belief and religion that the Messiah was going to come. And set up the kingdom. And, set up the kingdom and throw off the yoke of Rome. And so there's a whole different complexity of religious thought and belief that goes into being a Jewish believer then goes into being a Gentile believer. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I may have just over-explained it, no. but I want you to get it. Don still doesn't get it yet. No. <laughs> that, that distinction, was it a practical distinction that ended when the temple was destroyed, or does that exist today? I know they can't sacrifice it now because the temple... Right. But they really couldn't do it even in Jesus' day because in the Holy of Holies there was no Ark of the Covenant. So there was no Day of Atonement. There hadn't been a Day of Atonement rightly celebrated since the time of the Babylonian captivity. And so is it a practical distinction? Yeah, I think God was purposefully showing the Israelites that there was no more physical way for them to worship him in a way that would justify so that he could set up Christ as the only means of justification. I agree with that. Did that answer your question? I think so. I'll go with that. Because it's 10 to 12, and I haven't said anything yet. Go ahead. I'm sorry. So my question is, so if you're raised a Jew today, yeah. and you come to Christ, the book of James would still speak to you? I don't know. You'd have to talk to a Jew that around today. I, I mean, you would have all, you still have done all the law if it was, you know, you had lived in that system. Yeah, I would suspect so. I mean, certainly the Jewish believers that I know, the Jewish believers that I know understand the New Testament in a way that we don't. John, writing to a Jewish audience. Jude, writing to a Jewish audience. The book of Hebrews, obviously a Hebrew writing to Hebrews. The book of James, written to a Jewish audience. Matthew, exceptionally Jewish. We try to Gentilize all that and read it through Gentile eyes and think it all applies to us in a very Gentile way. Gentile was the adjective I went with there. But the Jewish believers understand that the New Testament has continuity is a continuation of the Old Testament. And Alex grew up in the Church of Christ, who call themselves a New Testament church. They don't even 
read, study, look at the Old Testament. If I've mischaracterized them, let me know. But I think they have truncated their own New Testament education by not knowing what the Old Testament says because to anybody who understands the history and the covenants and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, they then see Jesus as the completion of God's faithfulness to his chosen people. And I see that as vital to understanding the faithfulness of God. If you think that God can save a people, can redeem a people, can make promises and prophecies to a people, and then say, never mind, now that the church is here, I don't need you anymore, well, then you can't trust that that God is faithful. And if he's not faithful to them nationally, millions and millions of people, how can you argue that he's going to be faithful to you? So I see the... I see the whole Bible as one book, and I see the continuity of the whole Bible, and so I see James as being part of that continuity and Jewish tradition, which is why he doesn't fit comfortably into a 20th century Gentile mindset, and why I don't agree with the commentators who try to put him there. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's like where we can read Paul, the letters from Paul, and we can even though they're written to a different audience, they direct, we can directly relate those to us now. Absolutely. But, if, if, but it's almost an anachronism, it would seem, to take James, you're saying it being kind of an intermediary period, to take that and then try to apply that to the Gentile church today. Jeff just said everything I've tried to say for the last 45 minutes, okay? That's, that's it. It is almost anachronistic to take James, who was writing to a specific audience at a specific time, and try to apply it to the church today, and then try to get him to say what Paul said. What Paul was saying was to churches, Gentile churches, us. What James was saying was not really to us to begin with. We can be educated by it. We can learn from it. But it's not to us. Does that make sense? Okay, well, I'll see you next Sunday. That was all introduction. It was all conclusion. Let's start reading in the book of James because he's going to start talking about partiality within the church, which is how this chapter begins. I know. I know. I'm I'm very funny right now. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, there is James again referring to brethren. So, yes, I believe he's writing to Jewish believers. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit by my footstool. Well, then have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? 
and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So let's go back and look at this. I like the translation that the NASB uses here in verse 2 in saying if a man walks into your assembly, the common word, oh, should we do this again? I'll just talk through it. Most of you have seen me write it on the board enough that this should just be review. The word for Lord is the Greek word kurios. Those who belong to the Lord are the kuriakon. That word is the word from which we get church. It is just moved down through the languages. Kuriakon, here are those two K sounds in there, worked its way into the French and Celtic languages as kirke. To this very day, you can read about the, the kirk in the dell, which is the little church in the dell. As language became anglicized, and you see the hard CH being used in place of a K, like chrome, well, then you see the spellings of the kirke with CHs instead of K, and as it moved into America, it became softer, it became church, which is Kirk, which is Kirke, which is Kiriakon, which is those who belong to the Kurios. Get that? That's the derivation of the word. So there is a word in the Greek language that means a gathering, an assembly, and that word is ekklesia. It means ek out classes called so the out called people the out called individuals ecclesia in the new testament is most commonly translated as church as a consequence we get certain little memory tapes in our mind where when we see the word church we start thinking of the building or the spires or the people and the bells and the church But actually the word at its root means a gathering, an assembly. It's one of the reasons that we are Grace Christian Assembly as opposed to Grace Christian Church. Had I thought ahead, had I known the number of people that would think we were Assembly of God, we would be GCC instead of GCA. But assembly is the proper translation of that word ecclesia. Now having said all that, that's not the word that James uses here. James uses a real interesting word, synagogue, which is the word from which we get synagogue, which is a word that has that very Jewish connection. He says, in your synagogue, but he's talking about what we would refer to as the church. So he's saying, when you assemble with other believers, which we would define as a church gathering, he calls it synagogue. When you gather as a meeting of, of believers. Now, synagogue actually is a feminine noun in the way the word is structured, but it usually means a meeting of men, ironically enough, because it was usually men who would gather at the synagogue. So again, James is using language that harkens back to the Jewish heritage because people who couldn't get to the temples would build local and area synagogues, especially when they were in Babylon or any of the other captivities, when they were driven out, when they were scattered. They'd go into the areas of the Gentiles, and they would build for themselves meeting places that became known as synagogues. 
James uses that word, and I find that important in understanding who he's writing to. So the more you dig into even the language and the specificity of James, you can see that he's writing to Israelite believers and even using that kind of language. Was that worth the side trip? Yes. I, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. If a man comes into your assembly, which is what it is, with a gold ring or dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, sit here in the front row where the cameras can see you so that it's broadcast over our satellite dish so that everybody in America can see that you, the celebrity, go to my church. See, that happens today, doesn't it? Happens all over the place. Or, oh, it's a celebrity preacher. Look, Joel Osteen has come to visit. Let's put him right up on the front row so everybody can see him. And maybe a little bit of that best life now will rub off on me. Maybe those millions of dollars that flow to him, some of that's going to flow to me because I've got a celebrity in my midst. I've got a well-known person in my midst. I'm going to put him right up front where everybody can see him. Or I'll put him on the platform. Even better. I have him sitting right up front where everybody can see me surrounded by celebrity preachers, so I must be something. That's the kind of stuff that goes on in the church today. James denounces that for the reason that God does not show partiality. God doesn't care about celebrity. God doesn't care about rich or poor. God doesn't care about gold rings that are just going to melt in the conflagration anyway. You pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you sit over there. Or you stand over there. Or you sit by my footstool. Well, then, if you do that, haven't you made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Notice where James takes it. He doesn't just leave it at, well, that's a good social move to put the important people up front and make sure everybody can see them. He says, you're becoming a judge, which you're not to do. You're judging the poor people just for being poor, which, by the way, let me also add another wrinkle to this. If God is absolutely sovereign, which we believe he is, and if God is in control of everybody's life and estate, if it's God who determined where people were going to end up and in what social status then who are we to judge what God has already done? Who are we to say, well, God, who's in charge of everything, God, who is not a respecter of persons, has made that person a little less wealthy than this person, but that makes the wealthy person better than the poor person. No, it doesn't. You don't know what God is doing in any individual's life. You don't know if he has taken them down on purpose. I know a man right now, and if I said his name, you all would probably know him. I know a man right now that was once a multimillionaire who today is working a job, making a paycheck, getting by. Now, does that mean he's less righteous now? No, because actually his faith has been dramatically, exponentially increased by what God took him through. So... If I were to look at him in his now working man, semi-impoverished state and judge him and say, well, God sure took you down a peg. You must not be any good. You had millions, you idiot. Why didn't you put some in the bank? 
Why didn't you hold on to some of that while you had it? Yeah, I know. Well, then that would be me judging that person for the very thing that God did for him to increase his faith. So you don't know what God is doing in anybody's life, but if you trust that God is sovereign, if you trust that he knows what he's doing, if you trust that he's in charge of his universe and he's in control of every man's life, then wherever any man is right now, he's there because God put him there. And if God put him there and is active in his life, who are you to judge him? So then why should you bring him into the church and say, Stand over there, out of the way where nobody can see you. We don't want people to see your tattered clothes and your dirty estate. Certainly don't sit in the front row, whatever you do. But, oh, you rich people, you well-to-do, you finely dressed people, you good-looking folks, sit right up front where everybody can see you and say, my, this is a wealthy, good-looking, well-to-do church I've come into here. Well, that happens all the time. And James says, when you do it, look at the word, It is evil. Not just it's a mistake. You've become judges with evil motives. And what are those evil motives? To make yourself something you're not. To make yourself look good. To rub shoulders with the rich and powerful, hoping that some of that will rub off on you. And taking the poor man who has a genuine need and not fulfilling that need. Now, James is going to continue to say, if you see somebody with a need and you don't fill that need, then you're not actually helping that person. If you just say, oh, be blessed, but you leave them still hungry, still naked, still in need, well, then you haven't really helped them. You might have looked very spiritual, but you haven't practically done anything. And that is the beginning of James's combination of having faith in Christ and doing good works. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? If that's true, then anybody who walks through these doors, regardless of what they look like, and we've had some pretty sketchy people come through these doors, We've had some folks come through the door that I thought, "Uh uh-oh. Then you get to know these folks. And they're saved by the same God. They believe in the same Christ. They're inhabited by the same spirit. And they have ended up being a tremendous blessing, at least to me and to everybody they talk to. But if you judge the book by its cover, if you judge by the looks, then you're not only going to miss that great blessing of getting to know them, but you're going to judge them with your evil intention, and they are the very people that God chose. They're the poor of this world that God chose to be rich in faith. And you've counted them as poor in this world, so therefore not worth your time. James says that's evil. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And heirs of the kingdom which he promised. In other words, the kingdom is not just promised to the rich and powerful. The kingdom is promised to them too. And someday you're going to be in the kingdom and so are they. And you're judging them now? 
like you have some platform some moral authority to stand over them and say they're not as good as the rich people and yet they're going to be heirs of the kingdom so verse 6 says but you have dishonored the poor man is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court I, I like James's sense of humor there because the reality is it is the rich who oppress the Israelites why are these people out of Jerusalem it wasn't because the poor people got together and drove them out they're out of Jerusalem and scattered among the Gentiles because it was the rich and powerful who had enough authority to oppress them it is the rich it is the powerful it is those who have authority that oppress the Israelites here and he says and yet they come in among you and you act like it's a big deal that they're with you. You put them in a good seat. You put them up front. But they're the ones who are the reason that you're not in Jerusalem today. This is insane. Why are you thinking like this? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, verse 8, you are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, then you're doing well. So now we know what the context is for James bringing up that verse from the Old Testament, bringing up the loving your neighbor as yourself. He's saying it because there are rich and poor divisions and distinctions being made within the assembly, within the synagogue. So he's saying, don't show that kind of partiality. That's verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. And you are convicted by the law as transgressors. So get the contrast. Don't miss the contrast. If you follow the royal law which is love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing good. But if you're showing partiality, then the law of Moses, that includes, that's why I began a hundred years ago by saying the commandments, six of them have to do with how you treat other people. Even back in the law, there's a lot said about how you treat your neighbor, which is why Jesus would say the second great command, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why that emphasis exists. James says that that very law that commands that you treat your neighbor well, if you don't, that law is going to condemn you and convict you. So why would you show partiality? That's his argument. If you show partiality, you have sinned. If you have sinned, the law is going to judge you because the law itself says don't do that. The logic is follow the royal law, which says treat your neighbor as yourself. Be good to them. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in any one point, then he's become guilty of the whole law. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, then you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, apply this accordingly. If you have followed the law, fine. If you're doing everything appropriately, but you're oppressing the poor man, you've broken the law. 
And if you've broken the law, in any one point, you're guilty of the whole law. And according to James, that very law is going to condemn you. Do you follow the argument here? It's a brilliant argument. Don't show partiality. Don't oppress the poor man because that is sin. If it is sin, it is breaking the law. And if you break the law in any one point, you're guilty of the whole law because the same God who said don't kill and the same God who said don't commit adultery is the same God who said don't act like that. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment by the law will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That's where we'll start next week. We'll start right there with that question. What is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? I think we've adequately introduced it and to some degree concluded it this morning. But we're going to take a close look at what James says. We're going to compare it to what Paul says. We're going to go verse by verse and look at the big sections where these arguments are made. And we're going to understand the contrast and understand how it teaches us. Doesn't all apply to us, but it all teaches us. I do not want to ask if there are questions. (coughs) I think we've pretty much covered the question part. We're good. Are you into this? You're enjoying where this leaves us. All right, well... Be back next week and we'll continue to dig into this. I knew, like I said, when I walked through the door, I thought if I got through this morning without questions, it would be a miracle and that the rapture was right around the corner. But I'm very thankful and very grateful for all your questions because this really is a a big thorny issue that people have argued about for 2,000 years. We're just going to do our best to see if we can sort it out according to what it actually says. Okay? Okay. I'm talked out. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.